Welcome to the Religion Unplugged podcast. I'm Alyssa Harrison. Today on the podcast, we are talking relationships and why are people today so much more willing to date outside of their religion, but so much less willing to date someone with different politics? How does one navigate an interfaith relationship? Our contributor, Joseph Holmes, talks with Naomi Riley, author of the book, Till Faith Do Us Part, how interfaith relationships are transforming America to get her insights. Thank you, everybody, so much for joining us. I am Joseph Holmes. I am a culture writer for Religion Unplugged and podcast host for The Overthinkers. Uh, with us today is uh, Naomi Riley. She is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and concurrently a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. She is an author of multiple books, including No Way to Treat a Child, uh, Be the Parent, and of course, to, for our purposes today, she is the author of Tilt Faith to Us Part, How Interfaith Marriage is Transforming America. Uh, thank you so much for for uh, coming on today, ma'am. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So we're was going through the internet uh, the other day, and one of the things that's been coming up a lot in discussions recently is the rise of uh, interfaith relationships, that is, people who are um, willing to date and be in relationships with and married to people um, outside their own faith background. According to Pew Research, um, only 19% of Americans who wed before 1960 were in an interreligious marriage. But in 2010, 39% were. Yet what's interesting, of course, concurrently to that is uh, what's become increasingly common so while that's become more common, it's also become more common for people to say that they are um, their deal breaker is somebody who is votes differently, who is outside of their political party. I think it's like something like seventy one percent of Democrats say that they won't date somebody who uh, is votes for the other party, and uh, and the, it's like thirty nine percent Republicans or something like that. So uh, you've written a book on interfaith relationships. I was wondering what your um, what in your research, what did you find as sort of the reason that people were more open, are, are increasingly open to uh, dating outside their religion? Sure. Well, there are a lot of reasons people are increasingly open to dating outside their religion. One, of course, is that religion has become less important to a lot of people. Um, you know, we have become a less religious nation. And so even people who nominally say, um, you know, they subscribe to a particular religion, it might not be important to them. Um, but one all, one other important factor, I think, and one that was really highlighted in the survey and the interviews that I did for the book is that the more people wait to get married, the longer they wait to get married, the older they are when they get married, the more likely they are to marry outside their faith. And I think that what's happening is you have this sort of crucial time period when people are in their, um, you know, early mid twenties, um, you know, when they are not practicing religion, say the way they did growing up, or even perhaps the way they intend to later in life, they're, um, you know, changing jobs and roommates and cities and all sorts of things. And they haven't really put down religion just roots. And so when you meet someone at that stage of life, when you're sort of engaged in those kind of more secular practices, maybe you're not going to church or synagogue as faithfully as you might have before, maybe you're not as rooted to a community, um, you meet someone and you sort of give off the impression of someone uh, for whom religion is not particularly important. And then you sort of, um, you know, kind of get into this relationship where religion is not a big factor. Um, and as I write about in the book, you know, that can sometimes come back to bite you later on. Um, but 
as you're sort of in those early 20s, like, you know, there are lots of things that you may have done when you were a kid, when you were living with your parents, or that you intend to do someday with your kids, that you're not engaged in now. And of course, lots of religious institutions are tearing their hair out about how to engage those 20 somethings. Um, and it's this, you know, vicious cycle where you're like, well, you know, we, we do a better job of engaging married people. But on the other hand, if we don't engage the single people, then they're going to get married outside the faith and it will be less um, easy for us to engage them anyway. So um, so that's sort of the, the reason people are, I think, one of the many reasons people are, are marrying outside the faith more often um, is that they're waiting longer to get married and they're getting married at a secular time in their lives. Um, in terms of politics, you know, obviously you have these sort of independent political factors, which is that our country has just become much more politically polarized. But I also think, um, you know, there used to be this mantra that you weren't supposed to talk about, you know, politics or religion at the dinner table. Um, I think people have continued uh, to believe that you're not supposed to talk about religion very publicly. Uh, but politics is kind of uh, anything goes these days. And so it's not surprising that you find people who go out on a first or second date and, you know, you know, uh, by the end of that date, you know, where they are in abortion, on gun control, on Donald Trump, on all sorts of things. And they, you know, it's it's one of the you know, first things that comes tumbling out of sometimes young people's mouths, um, you know, for better or worse. And I think that their religious beliefs, on the other hand, and their their faith practices are tend to be much more private. And so the relationships where you have people sort of saying their political views up front, um, you know, and the, those things are kind of deal breakers, you find out right away before you've gotten to know anything else about the person where you might be willing to make some compromises. And I think with religion, you know, I, I found in my survey that, you know, I think more than half of couples didn't actually talk about how they wanted to, what religion they wanted to raise their children in before they got married. Um, wow. And so you like, that's an issue where people just, <laughs> oh, we'll just deal with it later. And it's very private and I'm not going to discuss it. But, you know, you want to know my opinion on, um, you know, Donald Trump, you're going to find out with the first five minutes of our first date. Yeah. Okay. So you brought up a lot of really interesting things here that I want to unpack a little bit, and then, but then not go on to something that you alluded to, which is that they they it comes back to bite them oftentimes later. So you brought up the aspect that um, uh, that uh, people that religion is just not as important as a country as it once was, but politics has become increasingly important. I think that that's really interesting. It makes a lot of sense because you know there's there's a lot of and you also discussed how you know we don't talk about religion. Or politics, religion at the dinner table, but we do talk about politics. I think there's been an interesting shift. You know, you have the phrase "the personal is political." That's often, pretty, but you also talk about the people talk about the secular sacred divide. How, you know, during the Enlightenment, it was like, okay, religion is a private matter that you keep to yourself, and that's a personal thing. Whereas, um, whereas the politics was growing. Well, no, everything is a part of politics, and it does make sense. You know, the great dechurching that was talking about. Well, why are people stopping going to church? One of the aspects of the data that they brought up is that essentially like, you know, one day a week for people, religion is relevant to them, you know, like Christian, you know, for Christianity, like you're going to church on Sunday, you know, and, you know, for Jewish, you go to, uh, you know, you, you go to temple on, 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 on Saturday, but, you know, but other aspects, you're like your work, your family, your politics that go is with you six days a week. And so those kind of things sort of take priority. And so you mentioned that aspect of 
um, it's just not as important anymore. It does seem that, you know, most people see more aspects of their daily life that are going to be touched by politics. Again, if you're, you know, you're going to work and you're getting, you know, DEI training or you've got some people, you know, or somebody might be harassing you at work, you've got those questions coming up. It's like, oh, is, is my, you know, you can think, oh, is my husband actually going to be expecting me to bear the burden of raising children? It's like, you know, if he's not a feminist, it's kind of like, okay, that feels more relevant. Whereas to what our relationships be like, whereas so much of our, Religious life is sort of segregated to these small places. We think, oh, this is uh, this is not going to be as big a deal. And you bring that up, you, you brought that up also very, very interestingly. Um, because, yeah, because the other thing you brought up that's fascinating to me is that, yeah, in particular times of our life, our life is more secular. So when we're just leaving home and we haven't gotten married yet, you know, and we're working, so much of our life is in the We've got to, you know, pay our bills. We've got all these other things that are just more secular in our lives. I think mean, the the origin of dating created this uh, book talking about how we enter in the dating world. We enter into sort of a world of strangers for the first time. And at times past, you know, it was okay. We it was our small town. We would mostly be dating people in. So we'd mostly uh, be you know dating people we kind of knew or had family or some relations with now if we're in the cities we're mostly it's mostly strangers who mostly know our work identities and things like that so it's all very interesting i think that that's 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 fascinating i think it makes a lot of sense as to why those trends are going in the direction they are but you brought i I will just say in terms of like sort of the, the political sort of being um you know relevant to all these aspects of your life i mean i'm not sure that that's necessarily what's driving it so much as just sort of being in a culture where politics has unfortunately become paramount and just being surrounded by you know social media and other stories that that everybody feels the need to wear their politics on their sleeve like all of you know these important public policy issues always touch people's lives but the reason that our country is so polarized now and the reason why everybody seems to be living politics 24 7 i think has much more to do with like the media environment and the culture than the actual relevance of who is in the white house to your daily life so anyway that's a side side note but that's absolutely true. And I think I, and I should clarify, you know, it's when I sort of say it's like it, it takes up our lives six days a week. Partly what I mean is that, you know, if you you're going to get a, a, a church message, you know, on Sunday, but then the rest of the week, you're going to be watching the news and the news is going to talk about politics. So it feels more relevant to you because that's the rest of the week. That's the kind of messages you're getting. So that's an excellent point that it's not that politics has become actually more relevant to our lives. Right. It's that it seems to be more relevant to our lives and our identities now than it used to be. That's an excellent point. Anyway, but but I to, sidetracked you. Sorry. No, 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 no. That, that's excellent clarification. Now, by what what I want to ask you about then um, is that is that you, you, met, you brought up the fact that some of these come back to bite them because, again, it's a particular time in their lives that their lives are the most secular kind of in their twenties when they're first starting out. And then, but so what is it that people aren't getting or not realizing is going to be relevant to them? You know, uh, what ways it does it come back to bite them oftentimes if we when they do enter into an interreligious relationship. Right. 
So, I mean, one of the things that my survey looked at was uh, levels of marital satisfaction. Um, and not surprisingly, given that, you know, we have largely have a lot of choice about whether to get married and who to get married to, um, Americans generally have a pretty high level of marital satisfaction. But there was a variation, um, a, a gap between um, same faith couples and interfaith couples. Interfaith couples um, had a slightly lower level of marital satisfaction. Um, and I thought, you know, I think this this is interesting. And, and some surveys have shown a slightly higher level of divorce among interfaith couples. Um, I think this is interesting, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons. Um, if you talk to marriage counselors or psychologists or really anybody who's familiar <laughs> or even in a marriage, um, they might tell you that the, you know, the three things that married couples are most likely to fight over are how you spend your time, how you spend your money and how you raise your children. And religion in some form or another can impact all of those, um, you know, whether you are tithing, whether you are sending your kids to Jewish summer camp, um, whether you are going to services on a regular basis, whether you are celebrating the holidays and how you are celebrating the holidays, um, you know, and, and I think there's a lot of sort of, oh, we'll just figure that out when it comes along. Um, and, you know, the other thing that I think people, you know, tend to misunderstand is that, you know, some couples obviously do make these decisions, you know, before the kids come. So, you know, we are going to raise our kids Jewish. We are going to raise our kids Catholic, Mormon, Muslim, whatever. Um, and then they sort of assume that that's like a one-time decision. Um, and it is not a one-time decision. It is an everyday decision in some cases. Um, because you you what that means is obviously can mean very different things in different communities, um, in different contexts. You know, maybe your spouse who's of another faith feels comfortable going to a particular um, uh, religious institution, but then let's say the leader of that institution retires and somebody else takes over and that person doesn't make your spouse feel as comfortable is that is your spouse going to continue coming what does that message send to your children if their spouse stops coming um you know you decided you were going to send your kids to a particular kind of you know catholic school you know mm -hmm. is your is that is you know is that you know for all your kids you know what when you have to make a decision about high school when you have to make a decision about whether that's still appropriate given other factors um it just i think these are such complicated questions and and really could be, um, you know, explored on a, you know, monthly, if not daily basis among some couples, you know, and, and, and even couples who don't, you know, for whom religion is not a primary factor or who don't think of it that way. So that's, I think those are the two sort of ways that people, you know, misunderstand what's happening first, you know, that it's something that a decision we can put off till later. And second, once you've made the decision that it's like a one-time thing and now we're done, we've made the decision, Moving on to the next thing. Yeah, I think so. There's a couple of things that are really fascinating here that I would like to kind of get you to touch on a bit. Is what is what is that like? Optimistically, you know, the levels of satisfaction are slightly lower, you know, and there are and it's slightly higher risk of divorce. And so, you know, the the difference is, you know, it's not like it's not there, but it does seem like it's you know not super. You know, it's not like it's not like a death, you know, uh, curse if you do end up dating somebody or marrying somebody, particularly who has uh, is of a different uh, religious background. And I would assume that part of that is self-selection process. Again, if you're if you are choosing to 
uh, you know, marry somebody who's of a different faith, then you probably also, those religious differences are not as big a factor um, in your core values. Right, right. Although I would say by contrast, like, you know, on a day-to-day basis, you know, how you feel about gun control is going to have significantly less impact about on your marriage. I mean, envision certain circumstances, but I, I really fundamentally don't think that that's something that's going to come up on a regular basis as you're raising your kids or as you're, you know, deciding, you know, what, what to do on your Saturdays or Sundays. I mean, and so it's just interesting that people, you know, have this block of about those kinds of political issues or, or, you know, or frankly, who's in the White House. Um, whereas, you know, things like religion just seem like these sort of vague things that, you know, we don't really need to deal with. Well, that's, that's, I think, an excellent point. And I, I was going to bring that up sort of later, as we could sort of talk about this now then, it be, uh, because you very wisely pointed to that, is, so again, for me, I'm a Christian, you know, and so I, for me, see, like, you know, Christianity is the core value that, you know, politics is built on top of. And so it's like, if, you know, again, if, for me, it's like, if you, you know, if we say, okay, Jesus says it, like that's the trump card of our decision is that we make. And so it's hard for me to imagine, you know, being married to somebody who didn't have that same, you know, primary value of, you know, Jesus is Lord, you know, his, if, as long as we both agree on how to interpret what he said, you know, then if he says it, that that's the way we go. Um, it is weird to me that we've supplanted because religion makes the claim that it is an actual um, getting to the bottom of, of what the universe actually is. And mm-hmm. that's that's the claim it's making. And so it's weird to me that you would, you know, politics is really about application. And so it's like, OK, how do we apply these whatever core values that we have? That's how I see it. So it, oh, it does seem weird and backwards to me that we would say, oh, it's not a big deal you know, uh, what our core values that we believe at the bottom, what reality is actually like, that right, that would right. not, um, that that would be a smaller deal that are uh, agreements or disagreements of how to apply what those values are in practice. Right. Now, right. I, I understand the aspect of like, oh, if you're voting to have the guns pointed in my direction, that's, you know, a, a very practically relevant to me. And I understand that. But like you said, there are very few actual political things that are actually, you know, guns pointed in my direction metaphorically. Right. But and, I mean, this is what, you know, when people talk about how politics has become a religion, this is what they mean, yeah. you know, which is that, you know, these these are this is the at core at bottom, you know, what yes. you think, and there is nothing, you know, there is nothing Beneath separating that, yeah. that, you know, core from the application of it. It's all just one. This is my identity, you know, any criticism of these public policy issues is a fundamental attack on me personally. Yeah, no, that, that's okay. That's, I think that's the best description of that is that politics has become a religion. And by that, it means it's describing reality all the way down in yeah. which it didn't before. And, but to your point, I believe, I forget the actual article that I'm, that I'm uh, getting this from, but somebody was pointing to studies that also showed, I just, like I just said, the um, you know, the, the levels of satisfaction are and, and divorce are not super different between interreligious couples and interfaith couples and non-interfaith couples, but neither are the, you know, uh, levels of marital satisfaction for people who are married cross-politically as well. So your, your, your point that people 
regardless of whether you think it's a good thing or a bad thing that people are, you know, uh, more open to dating people outside their faith and less you know, open to dating um, uh, politically, they, the ratios are way off. People are way, you know, are taking the political thing way too seriously and they're not taking the religious thing seriously enough. They need to have a much better equilibrium than they're having right now. Would you say that's about an accurate uh, way to describe it? I, I mean, yes, I think that that's, that's probably a reasonable position to take, but you know, some people would say like, this truly is my core and, um, sure. you know, and, and I wouldn't want to advise someone to marry them <laughs> assuming that they would get over it. So yeah, I, yeah. I take your Yes, point. no, we should, the, the discussion should be, maybe you should reevaluate your core perhaps. Right. <laughs> But I think also, okay, so the other, other thing that I think is, is interesting about what you said is that people are, um, people are, are coming in again to marriages, relationships, um, as secular point in their lives. And then that they are, they're coming up against things that they're not, don't realize are going to be problems because they're a different place in their lives. Right. And so, but then also you're saying it has to be it's decisions you have to make day by day because again, it's such a core thing and becomes even more of a core thing that it has, it kind of keeps being the same, even though life things in your life, um, Shapes like I say, like there's you're comfortable with. Right. This I mean, there's going to be going. these big symbolic moments where, like, right. you're in this interfaith relationship, and you're like, oh my gosh, who's going to marry us? Where are we going to get married? Like, yeah. what is going to be said during the ceremony? Like, these are sort of big things. Or, you know, are we going to have a baptism? Are we going to have a bris? Or, you know, those are, you know, is there a kid going to be bar mitzvah? Where, like, those are, I think, the things that people think will happen down the line. And I'm just, I'm, those are definitely going to happen. But, um, but all these other little decisions that have to do with sort of the level of comfort of the people in the marriage and the children, I think, you know, are what people tend to underestimate. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, in the, you know, uh, in looking at your book and what you wrote, I found that you are yourself, yourself in, in inter, interreligious marriage. And so I guess for people who were, you know, who are potentially, you know, entering into something like this and for the research that you've done for this, like what are the ways that people are best able to navigate these and what of the challenges that you were able to navigate, you know, how, how were you able to navigate these um, successfully? So I'm in a I'm in a faith no faith marriage, which in my gotcha, survey yes. counted as an interfaith marriage, but um, okay, my husband was not was not practicing anything when we got married, um, and even when we started dating. Um, but so I'm I'm Jewish, and he is a former Jehovah's Witness. Um, I gotcha. had. Um, I, I would say that the sort of the way I navigated this, and I think, you know, I, I don't mind saying this is, a, I think, an important bit of advice for other people, is that I actually told him on our first date that we were going to raise our children Jewish, which <laughs> I acknowledge is weird and awkward. And a lot of people would be like, you're crazy, um, you know, especially because there's so, you know, that that's the other thing that I should mention, too, is that the cultural um, uh, kind of disapproval of of talking about where a relationship is going early on in a relationship mm. is so strong yeah. that I think that makes it harder to have these important conversations. Yeah. You know, you're just going to be seen as some like crazy girl who's on her first date talking about kids and, you know, what are, you know, only like, you know, Orthodox Jews and, you know, traditional Catholics are doing that. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, that, that works against kind of having these conversations. And I have had, 
a number of friends, you know, who have gotten very far into the interfaith relationships and they, you know, get more and more attached to the person. And all of a sudden it sort of feels like, okay, well, well, there is this deal breaker, but we're two years in and that's really hard. That's a hard time to have that conversation. So I, I guess I would say, you know, having these conversations earlier, even though it's awkward, I think is important. And maybe the first date is not the time, but, you know, it definitely seems like, um, you know, trying to sort of move away from that idea before that before the six uh, month mark might be a good. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, you you pick where where you think is appropriate, but I mean, I think you know people are just um, very very reluctant to have those serious conversations mm-hmm. about and and also may not like as I said because we were talking about kind of being at a secular point in your life. Mm-hmm you know, may not have fully taken stock of themselves of what mm-hmm. is the most important thing to them or what will be important to them mm-hmm. later on. So, um, you know, just sort of having a little bit of a, you know, personal temperature taking mm-hmm. before you, you know, sort of get more and more attached to someone, I guess. Yeah. No. So that's two, two big things I think are excellent. And you know, we, you know, my co-host and I talked about this on our Overthinkers podcast too, uh, which you should definitely check out. Uh, but is that uh, shameless plug? Uh, but the thing is that first, you do have to first know yourself. Like, what are your actual core values? Like, maybe I might think that your core values might be misaligned, but you should know what your core values are and actually take stock of those and where you actually reasonably think that they're going to be you know, five years from now, recognize that if you're in a particular secular time in your life right now as a young person, statistically, it's likely you won't always be that way. And so at least, you know, have the self-awareness of that. So self-awareness, but then also communication. This is, again, every time I read, you know, I read, you know, uh, divorce attorneys and psychologists talk about like, you know, about what happens as relationships, communication, lack of communication is at the top of the list. So in many ways, you know, the interfaith conversation is just like a lot of these other conversations about, hey, you need to be openly and bluntly communicating about your expectations with finances. You need to right. be and, bluntly and, uh, you know, and communicating the, about the sex and things like that. But yeah, go ahead. Right. No, no, no. I mean, I, yeah, I, I had a number of religious leaders say to me, like, you know, you have to know your non-negotiables. And I, yeah. I think that's a good way to understand it. But, you know, and, and the religious leaders sort of are in this, you know, kind of difficult position here, because I think, you know, for a lot of time, um, you know, some of these issues would have come out in marital counseling or like in a premarital counseling setting. Um, but now that's all for most people, just kind of this formality where you meet with the priest or the rabbi or whoever it is like a couple of times once you've already decided where this relationship is going and you're you know three four five years into it and so you know they're then in this sort of awkward position where they're kind of asking you these questions and you know you're trying to sort of paper this over because you have a you know a hall reserved and a caterer and everything else and i think that you know that also makes it more difficult i do you know it it, even something like um you know the pre-canna i think is a very useful exercise even you know having a form of that for people whether or not they're catholic just because there's so many questions on that i mean even if 
you don't, I'm not saying everyone's going to agree, you know, or see eye to eye on every one of those questions, but they do. And if you talk to couples who've been through it, you know, raise a lot of interesting questions, you know, which are going to require that kind of communication in the long term. So, you know, any kind of thing you can do, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't mean like, you know, take the, you know, Cosmo, are we compatible quiz, but kind of like, uh, you know, some kind of extensive, let's talk about the major issues, you know, that might come up and see where we are before we get very far down this road. No, that makes that makes total sense. I and mean, again, it's one of those things that, you know, for me, the takeaway is that it's one of those things that people don't think is actually going to be a big deal, but it is going to be a big deal. And you may not, you know, see eye to eye on everything, but it's good to know what things you're not going to see eye to eye on and be able to plan for that and know what those deal breakers are. Um, so is there anything that we haven't covered on this topic that you think is important for us to cover on it before we wrap up? No, I, I think when I talk in the book about, um, you know, interfaith marriage, I mean, we've talked sort of mostly about the problems of it. And sure. I, you know, I think that on a personal level and on a familial level, um, it can be very difficult. But I also, you know, have to say, like, it is an, a kind of a sign of American tolerance um, and assimilation uh, that we do have such a high rate of interfaith marriage. And, and you know, the other studies have shown that, you know, if if you have someone in your extended family who is someone of another faith, mm -hmm. you tend to feel more warmly toward all the members of that other faith. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, you know, at a time where, you know, people are feeling pretty, um, uh, you know, not getting along so great with a lot of other Americans, it, it is, uh, you know, a kind of um, nice feeling to know that there are still these trends, which are very uniquely American, by the way. I mean, you know, it is interfaith marriage. If, you know, if you talk to, you know, people in other countries and other continents about interfaith marriage, even just the idea of it is just, you know, seems insane to them. Like, why would you marry outside your own group? And what, you know, what are you, what are you trying to accomplish? And, um, and so I just, I think that it's important to, you know, to understand that there, there is a, a positive side to this. Mm. Um, and that, you know, the other thing, which is kind of interesting is that, you know, some percentage of these interfaith marriages end in same faith marriages. Um, mm. And I, I did a well, lot of, you know, I know that, that that may not have, I mean, the numbers off the top of your head, but do you know like how large that number is? It's, it's pretty small. I don't have the sure. numbers off the top of my head. And, and my survey, you know, I, it, it's hard to sort of say it, statistically what, what right. was statistically significant. Right. Um, but, you know, it was, it was kind of interesting. I mean, for some people, you know, well, they started off as an interfaith couple when they were dating and just one decided to convert when they got married. Sure. Um, but for some, you know, it was a it was a long thing. You know, I, I talked to people who, you know, decided to convert after 20 years or something. Um, wow. You know, they they felt so welcome in the community or they decided to convert when there was a bar mitzvah or something like that. Um, and, and even when they don't, I mean, the, there's a lot of support among the member of the other faith, you know, even if you like, decide to raise your kids in one faith, um, you know, there are some very supportive partners out there who truly do, um, you know, become, you know, part of the community in every way, except, you know, conversion. Sure. And so, right. You know, anyway, I just I, I wouldn't want to leave people with the idea that it's all terrible. 
<laughs> your no, marriage is gonna end. That's a, that's an excellent point. Again, if like you know, and I can get into this too. I can I can um fall into this trap too, where we're you know seeing a lot of these trends. We see the costs that go along with them and the problems that go along with them. Even kind of like the even the just sort of the massive kind of amount of choice that creates a sort of difficulty in the dating world. But you make an excellent point that one of the reasons that there is, and people may be shocked even to hear this, that there is such a high rate of marital satisfaction, you know, in America. But one of the reasons that there is, is because there is so much freedom to choose your actual partner based on. And and there, and one of the reasons, by the way, that there used to be less marital satisfaction among interfaith couples than there is now is because of external factors. So, mm. you know, it, it's similarly to interracial marriage. Like, right. you know, many interracial couples were happy, but they became, it became almost impossible for them to find a place to live and work and be a family because, you know, this group didn't want them and that group didn't want them. And they always felt, you know, ostracized. And I think, you know, if you look back to like the 1950s, being in an interreligious couple, you know, in many cases had that feeling of like, well, we don't belong here. We don't belong there. That leads to a lower level of satisfaction. So, so as the, I think external pressures have gone away, that's also increased people's level of satisfaction too. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, If people are interested in your work and the work that you do, uh, where can they find you and uh, support, uh, support your work? Sure. So I have a website, Naomi Riley, R-I-L-E-Y dot com. Um, and they can also find my work um, at the website of the American Enterprise Institute, which is uh, AEI.org. Fantastic. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. This is Religion Unplugged with all of your relevant religious news and culture. Thank you, Joseph. If you enjoyed this discussion, you can read Naomi Riley's book, Till Faith Do Us Part, available on Amazon, and check out this week's episode of the Overthinkers podcast, Should You Date Someone with Different Beliefs from You? And if you'd like to check out more of Naomi Riley's work, you can visit her website at naomiriley.com. Thank you for listening to the Religion Unplugged podcast. All of our reporting is made possible and paid for directly by donors like you. We want to thank everyone who was part of our Newsmatch campaign at the end of 2023. Thanks to you, we raised over $25,000 to go towards our contributors around the world who are telling stories of religion and important coverage in places like Asia, Africa, and South America. Consider how you can join us in our effort to increase religious literacy, whether it's a small donation, signing up for our weekly newsletter, following us on X, Instagram, and Facebook, or sharing our work on your social media channels. We look forward to partnering with you.